continuing on through our study. Um, we're, we're like three weeks out, guys, three weeks, and we're going to be wrapping up this study of Genesis. And uh, it's been an awesome journey, and I'm still praying about where to go next. I had originally thought that maybe we'd be going back to the New Testament, one of the gospel accounts. Um, but uh, part of me is feeling led um, to go, can just continue right into the book of Exodus. And so we'll see what that looks like. And uh, you can just be praying for me that God guides us in the right direction. So um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray uh, for our study again real quickly, and then we'll get going. Lord, I pray as we study and read your word today that it would um, do the work that you've sent it to do. God, for right now, for such a time as this, you know where each person is at um, in their lives, the things that um, we're rejoicing over and the things that we're mourning over. And, and Lord, we know that you're with us in, in each of those situations. And God, as we study your word this morning, I pray that it would penetrate deep into our hearts. Lord, I feel also led to pray for our missionaries today that uh, are spread throughout the world. And even Isaac and Amy are down in in um, New Mexico and having church services this morning. Um, Lord, your church is gathered together in your name to worship you and to bring glory to you in so many different places. And so we pray, God, with the, for those who we have relationships with, those who you've called us to support and to encourage. And uh, Lord, they're in our hearts and in our minds. And we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, when we ended chapter 46, if you remember, um, um, we were told how Joseph had gone up to Goshen. He was there. Uh, in in Egypt, and he'd gone up north to to meet his father Jacob, and we read about that emotional reunion that they had when Joseph finally presented himself to his father. And we know that twenty two years had passed. Imagine that twenty two years had passed since they had last saw each other. And sadly, um, that separation was the result of Jacob having been lied to and deceived by his other sons who told him that Joseph had been killed by a wild beast. And, and, and we know that Joseph had not been, been killed by a wild beast. He had actually been betrayed by his brothers who had taken hold of him and sold him into slavery because of the envy and hatred that they, that they had for him. But as we've traveled through this story and through the word, what we've seen is that God's had a plan. Through all of that, from day one, God had a plan. And one of the things that, that um, um, establishes that firm for us is really if you look at Joseph's life and the events that happened when we were introduced to him, it was with these dreams that God had given Joseph, right? About his brothers bowing down to him and about how him being raised to a place of authority. And it was really God coming to Joseph and saying, Joseph, I have a plan for your life. And you may not understand the journey but it's my plan for your life. And often, guys, it's like that. We don't, we don't understand the left turns and the right turns and the hills and the valleys and, and these things that we face. But God has a plan for each one of our lives. And God had a plan for Jacob's life as well. And we saw and we've seen through this, and we're going to continue to see that, that God was able to use even the evil things that Joseph's brothers had intended for him, and he turned it into good. And in doing so, God sustained Joseph and even prospered him during those 22 years. And now we see that God had sustained and prospered Joseph in order to prepare the way for Jacob. 
who is now entering into Egypt. Jacob and his sons and all of their families to come down into Egypt. And by doing so, God would fulfill his promise ultimately there in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen specifically in Egypt, to multiply Jacob and his descendants and to grow them into the mighty nation of Israel that still lives on today, from whom the Messiah was given to the world. Now, as a part of this plan, we see that God made a provision for his people who were now living within the borders of another country. He made a provision for them to remain a chosen people, separate, holy, separated unto him. And, 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 and remember, this is a big deal because the Egyptians were a pagan people. They worshipped pagan gods, false gods, many gods. But in doing so, in, in, in keeping them separated unto him, we see, we read, and we will read, how Joseph instructed his brothers to make it known to Pharaoh that their occupation, and to the rest of the Egyptians, that their occupation was that of a shepherd. They were shepherds, which we are told was a despised thing by the Egyptians. Literally an abomination is what we were told. And furthermore, we see that Joseph prepared his father and his brothers to be formally introduced to Pharaoh where they would make this declaration that would keep them from being assimilated by the Egyptians until the time that they would would come for them to be delivered out of Egypt. And we see God doing this over and over and over again with the Hebrew people when they were taken into Babylonian captivity, when they were taken into Assyrian captivity, and even when they were dispersed throughout all the world, you know, when the Roman Empire came in. And we saw that in 1948 that the, the Hebrew people, that God kept them holy and separated unto Himself and drew them and has drawn them back into the land. No other, that's happened to no other nation ever. No other people group ever where they retain their heritage, their culture, their language over and over and over again. And one would think that if you were a family of 70 some people going into the one of the, the mightiest nation of the time that was full of, of pagan people, you would think that they would just be assimilated right in, that they too over time would become Egyptian, that they would lose their identity. But again, it reveals that God had a plan. And not only did they not lose their identity, we're told that God did something great, something wonderful as a result of that provision, as a result of that thing. And rather than being being assimilated by the Egyptians, we we see that um, God would prosper them, that God would multiply them, that God would grow them. And before we discuss the details here in this next chapter, I want to point out that that in this chapter, and and I also want to set this in your mind so as we read through it, you can begin to look and identify some of these things that we again see here, which we've seen and talked about in previous chapters leading up to this. But But there are in this chapter even more spiritual representations between Joseph and the things that he, he did and, and would do for his, his family and, 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 and a spiritual representation or a comparison to what Jesus has done for us. And there are things that we should take note of. For example, there's a comparison to be made between Joseph and the grace that he showed his brothers as he presented them before Pharaoh. And, 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 and what I mean by that is as he presented him bef- them before Pharaoh, Pharaoh whom he had a relationship with for many years, Pharaoh whom he served, is that Joseph brings his brothers before him and, and, and never mentions any of the wrong things that they had done. That's awesome. That's a wonderful thing. Because it's a picture for us of how the Word of God teaches us that one day we, by Jesus, are going to be presented to God the Father in the same manner. 
Jesus is going to be by your side and He's going to say, this is my friend. This is my brother. Come on in. In fact, we're reminded of this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, which says this, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. In spite of your faults, in spite of our faults, my faults, our failures, our shortcomings, our sin, even the ones that we've continued to do after coming to faith and hearing and receiving the gospel message that there's coming a day when this life is over or when the Lord returns to get us that He's going to present us to the Father as holy and as blameless and above reproach. That's unfathomable. That's good news, is it not? In addition to this, there's another comparison that can be made as as we've seen in in Joseph's rule over Egypt during the famine, these seven years of famine. A comparison to that and to Jesus' reign, which we read about, which will be a thousand-year reign referred to as the millennial reign that will follow what the Bible tells us is a seven-year period of time referred to as the tribulation, where God's wrath and judgment is poured upon this earth. And there's a comparison between Joseph's reign in those seven years of famine and Jesus' reign in that like Joseph provided for the Egyptians, which we'll read about, who ultimately would have to submit themselves and all that they had, including themselves, into Joseph's care after all hope was lost. We see so too will Jesus after the tribulation period, after the seven years of tribulation, when all hope is lost, that He will provide for and He will care for those who will submit themselves into His reign into, under, his, under, his, under His reign during the millennial years. And even though both of these comparisons can and should be expounded upon, and then there's others within this chapter. It's so rich with spiritual comparisons. And even though there's others in this chapter that being drawn out, really this morning as we read through this, there's three main points of application that I, that I, I want that stand out to, to, to us that I want to draw your attention to this morning. So with that, if you'll follow along with me in chapter 47 of the book of Genesis, it says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father... And my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servant has no, your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land. Now therefore, please let your servants go in the land and dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh, verse 5, spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brother, your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father. Jacob and set him before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Jacob how old are you 
And Jacob said to Pharaoh, These days, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Few and evil have been the days of my years, of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them possessions in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all of his households, all of, the, all of his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. And, and even though there's not a but in between those two, two verses, um, it, it would be appropriate if there was. Because as we read on, it says there's this contrast being made. There's this contrast being painted for us. And it says in verse 13, it says, Now there was no bread in the land, for the famine was severe, so that the, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Remember, there were five years still remaining. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain they bought, uh, for the for for the for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed, in other words, when all the money was gone in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For all the money has failed." Then Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. And so they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. And thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all of the livestock that year. Verse 18, when the year had ended, they came to the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that Our money is all gone. My Lord also has our herds of the livestock. There's nothing left inside of my Lord except or but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we and our land will be servants, be the servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all the bought all of the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because of the famine was severe upon the land. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then, verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth, or twenty percent, to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own." as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your household and as food for your little ones. And so they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of the Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So verse 27, Israel 
Jacob dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please let your Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Father, I pray you would teach us by your Spirit. Lord, that we would see these things that apply to our own lives today. And that we would be doers, become doers of these words, Lord. And not just hearers only. Lord, we love you and and, um, we're grateful that you've saved us. And that you've given us a future and a hope. And Lord, that even when everything else may be um, in a disarray, Lord, you're still um, in control. You are not a God of confusion, but a God of love and a God of peace, a God of order. And you set our lives in order. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, if we look back to the first 10 verses of this chapter where we read about um, Joseph's brothers coming before Pharaoh and and, and the the encounter that they had, we read of the first of these three points that I want to draw our attention to this morning. And in the first 10 verses where we read about Joseph presenting his brothers to Pharaoh, we see that um, after the, 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 the five of the ten brothers that he had, the ones that he had handpicked, once they had answered Pharaoh's questions, explained not just what they did, but who they were and why they had come, then Joseph in verse 7, this is where it kind of gets interesting, is that he brought in, we're told, Jacob, his 130-year-old father, and he set him before Pharaoh. And when this happened, I don't know if you noticed it, it says that, that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then again in verse 10, we're told that when Jacob went out from Pharaoh, that he blessed Pharaoh for a second time. And this is something that should stand out to us because this is not the normal thing to do. In fact, it was customarily backwards for Jacob to bless Pharaoh. Yet in God's kingdom way of doing things, it was and still is the correct way. You see, Pharaoh was the one who had the greater power. Pharaoh was the one who had the greater authority. And typically, it was the greater who would speak the blessing to the lesser. Yet here we see Jacob, this old man of God, who was set in the presence of Pharaoh by his son, we see that he was the one that was speaking the blessing upon Pharaoh. Twice he does so. And in light of this, we are shown God's view of things. That's a really cool thing. When we see God's view of things, when we see things from God's perspective, which is different than our perspective, which is different than the way that the world does things. Different in that Pharaoh may have had the great earthly power, the greater earthly power. He may have had the greater authority, but In this situation, we see through God's eyes that the position of importance was attributed to Jacob. 
who had a relationship with God. To Jacob, who had humbly held on to all of God's eternal promises. And in light of this, we see how man's way of viewing greatness in our world today is so much different. In fact, it's directly opposite of God's view of greatness. In that the world ascribes greatness often on the basis of wealth or on a person or to a person or persons who who are elevated to a position of power, to a position of authority that allows them to rule over others. While God's view of greatness in God's kingdom way of doing things is rooted in humility. God's view of greatness is rooted in a willingness to give our lives away and to become literally the servant of all. And the greatest example of this, of course, is seen by the life of Jesus, the life that He lived before He was crucified. And Scripture teaches us, it tells us that Jesus, who is our example, He says that He made Himself of no reputation. He made Himself of no reputation. And He took the form of a bondservant and He humbled Himself to the will of God. And by this, Jesus... He willingly laid down His life. We know that. And He willingly laid down His life in order to serve us. To be a servant. To willingly lay His life down as a substitute sacrifice on the cross. Yet, because of this, the Bible tells us that Jesus who humbled Himself is highly exalted. Right? God's view of things. God's way of working. And that God, it says, has given Him the name which is above every other Name, the supreme one, supremacy. And Jesus, who is highly exalted, what we see is is that when he came, ultimately, guys, he came as Jacob came to Pharaoh. He came to bless. Jesus came to bless. He did not seek to be blessed. And so, as we look at Jacob's example of twice speaking a blessing upon Pharaoh, that points us to Jesus. You know what we should remember? We should remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which clearly tells us this. Let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of a servant, a heart of humility, one who is a giver and not a taker, a blesser and not just looking for the blessing. In other words, are we, simply put, are we living for ourselves or are we living for God? In this life, right here, right now, what is your life about? Are we always looking for what we can get or are we looking for opportunities to give? And by the way, the Bible tells you that when we see that opportunity to give, that we should take it. As a matter of fact, it's a sinful thing when we don't. If we have the means to do it. Are we seeking to be served or are we being the servants of God that we're called to be? Are we pursuing the blessing or are we being a blessing to those around us? Are you being a blessing to those around you? The fact of the matter is that just about everything in this world around us promotes a focus on self, does it not? Even more so now with social media. I don't think our children really get a, a, a anywhere in the world outside of the church today that they get any kind of different perspective than other than a focus on self. Consequently, guys, this is the world that we live in, and it's easy for us as Christians, is it not, to fall into this trap of self? 
Because we're so intundated with it, just like perhaps the children of Israel being there in Egypt could have easily been assimilated into Egypt, we too can be easily assimilated into the ways of this world even though we're, we're kingdom dwellers, children of God. And when we do so, guys, this is what we forget. We forget God's perspective of things. We forget that we have a greater position in this world that we live in. We have a higher call to serve and to bless others as a result of our own relationship with Jesus who gave us that example of servanthood. And not only just as as a result of our relationship with Jesus, but also as a result of the eternal promises of God which remind us that we should ultimately be storing up our treasures in heaven, not here on this earth. Now before we move on, there's one other thing in this in this passage with this encounter that I, I want to briefly point out from these first 10 verses. And it's the fact that when Jacob was speaking with Pharaoh, I, I love it that he referred to his life and the lives of his fathers, his forefathers, meaning Isaac and, and, and Abraham in verse 9, specifically as a pilgrimage. I know we talked about this before, but it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor. And, and there are a lot of metaphors that are used to describe life, this life journey. But the Bible, including these forefathers, used this metaphor of a a pilgrim or being on a pilgrimage many times. And that metaphor of what their lives had been like reminds us too that we are also on a pilgrimage. I think that's one of the things that we can easily lose sight of in this world that we live in today too. Where we forget the eternal things and we think that this is all there is. And I know we know this here, but sometimes our heart in the moment as we're going through hard and difficult things or we just get into the busyness of life, we, we, we don't relate with others. We don't interact in such a way that reminds us that we are just pilgrims, that reminds us that this world is not our home, that reminds us that this time here is brief and temporary. Therefore, we should be living for and looking to a permanent home. The Bible says the city of God, which is in heaven. That's where our mind needs to be. That's where our heart should be. That's how we should live daily as we remind ourselves that we too are pilgrims, sojourners, just passing through. That we're not citizens of this world. We're different. We're set apart. And God's called us to a greater thing to a more prominent position in him and through him. And so according to verse 11, it says in verse 12 that Joseph, he he took his, his, his family to Goshen. He situated his father, it says, and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father's, his father, his brothers, and his father's household with bread, according to the number in their family. But, and I'm sure you picked up on this when we were reading through this, but then in verses 13 to 20, 13 through 26, we see that, that the Egyptian people, including those in the land of Canaan to begin with, they somehow get dropped off the map completely as we see that they weren't citizens of Egypt. But at least the Egyptian people, we know and we see here that they did not have this same kind of favor. As the famine continued for another five years. And in light of this, there is this second point of application for us, I think, that we need to to take note of. A second point of application that we need to take note of as we consider 
that in order to survive, think about this, just to live, just to survive, just to have food to eat, the Egyptians had to give up everything. All of their money. All of their possessions in their land. And ultimately, even their own freedom, as we're told that they became Pharaoh's servants just to survive. Yet, even as the Egyptian people got poorer and poorer, we are told and we know that God multiplied His people in the land of Goshen. This is accounted in multiple places in Scripture. And as as I was reading and studying and reading through even the book of Exodus, there it is in the very beginning of the book of Exodus in chapter 1, verse 7, which says this, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty in the land was and the land was filled with them okay think about that for just a second they had no citizenship in egypt but yet they were given preference and favor in the land of egypt even over all the egyptians this is mind-blowing when you begin to think about that from a just a worldly perspective but even from god's perspective take back step back and look into it and go wow there's a really cool thing going on here And in Psalm 105, verses 23 through 24, it also speaks of this, and it says that Israel came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Goshen. He increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. And we know, I mentioned this last week, we know that when God sent Moses ultimately to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, that the Jews numbered somewhere around 2.5 million people. 430 years passed. They prospered. They maintained their identity. They sustained their freedom, their herds, their flocks, their, their children, their wealth. It all increased. And just as God had promised, He had made the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob into a great nation. So the application... For us, because in this, for us, we should see this wonderful example of God's faithfulness. It's a wonderful example of God's faithfulness and of His promise to protect us and to provide for us and for all of our needs when we put our trust in Him. And putting your trust in God means when He says, Go here, you go there, because He knows better. When He says, Do this, you do that, because He knows better better trusting in him that's the key furthermore the favor and provision that jacob and his family received during this time of famine what it shows us what it shows me and should show you as well is is how god can and will protect and provide for us even when everything in the world around us is failing you ever felt like that lately How about a fear as we've gone through certain changes and certain things, not only within our own nation, our own government, but but globally. Look at what's going on in North Korea and some of the things that's been spoken against Guam and and, and with China and Russia. And At times, if you get your eyes, if you watch too much news, you know what you're going to do. You're going to go like, the sky's falling. You're going to go, the world's failing. You want to know what, guys? It is. It is. But it's part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan. Because because this world was wrecked when sin entered in. And God said there's something better to come. 
But in all this, we see that even when the world, when everything around us is failing, that God is still there. That He still protects and He still provides. And the fact that God... Here's another thing, guys. This should blow your mind because this is so somewhat countercultural today, even within the Christian world and where, where Christianity tends to enter into politics. And not that that's what God would have us do specifically, but when, when our political world begins forcing morality, which is, which is God's business, right? When they start doing that, there's kind of this crossing over that happens. But my point is, is the fact that God used Pharaoh. Now think about who Pharaoh was. He was the pagan ruler of all these pagan people. Okay? Not a godly guy. By any means. And the fact that God used Pharaoh, a pagan ruler who worshipped a multitude of false gods in order to care for Jacob and his family, shows us not just care for them, but give them favor. He probably didn't even realize what he was doing. I mean, that, that he was being used by God in this way. But when we see this, it shows us that God's promises, the ones that we're reading about, but also the ones that God has spoken to us, that God's promises cannot be constrained And God's power cannot be restrained by any earthly leader who is in a place of power and authority over our lives. Amen? Amen. You know what? I have to keep that in mind because we deal, our church has to deal with these knuckleheads when we're doing stuff, when we're doing ministry into the world. Whether it's in the chaplaincy ministry or whether it's with the youth ministry and the bridge or whether it's with inviting and I still don't know why we did this, only because God said, but when we invited the state into our own church, when we opened up a state-run preschool, God orchestrated those things. And we now have to deal with these government authorities or are places of, uh, of power over us to some degree. And it can be really frustrating, but I have to remember that if God can, can use Pharaoh for his good, he can certainly use these other inspectors and these city council members and all these other people. It doesn't just have to be on, 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 on a presidential level where we look at this or on a global level when we look at global leaders. It can be with leaders in our own lives and not just political leaders or governmental leaders. It can be a boss. It could be in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a marriage relationship where God has set up authority structure or, or if you're a child and honoring your mom and your dad. In every level, in every aspect, that God's promises are not constrained and God's power cannot be restrained by any earthly leader who is in a place of power or authority in our lives. And I point this out because I think that there are many Christians who think that God can only use His people in places of authority in order to bring about His will. And that's not to say that we shouldn't pray and vote and, 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 and pick the, the most godly choice that we have. But guys, that doesn't limit our God if it doesn't work out the way that we think that it should. And consequently, when, 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 if we do believe that, when, when we do get in that spot, when we see ungodly people being put into the powers of positions of a power and authority, when you're in that, when you put your trust in that thing, you know what happens? You get a sense of despair and a simplest, a sense of hopelessness that that uh, that that can overtake to overtake you. But listen, guys, Proverbs chapter twenty-one is very simple. Verse one, a very clear verse. It says this: It declares to us how God is still in control 
even no matter who's in charge in this world, who appears to be in charge in this world, by telling us this, it says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that in this world that we live in that's failing all around us, that that somehow God's not in control? He's in control. Kim Jong-un, whatever his name is, God God will move that man's heart however He wants. And that's not to say that we shouldn't pray for people who are in danger. My son's in South Korea and I still don't know why I'm going there in the beginning of September, especially in light of everything that's going on. But you know, God's in control. He's on the throne. And He's given us favor, each and every one of us, while we're in this world. And even when everything else may be failing and falling apart around us, God says, I'm going to sustain you. That's the application. That's what we see here. Furthermore, guys, if that's not enough for you, this example of God using Pharaoh, a pagan ruler, to accomplish his will, his will you know, he, he's only one of many who are found in the Bible that God had used in the same way. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and chapter 27, we read about how God had appointed a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Uh, 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 historically, an awfully wicked guy. And he, he appointed him and he used him as God did as his instrument to discipline the Hebrew people by taking them out of the promised land into captivity. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar do that work or did God do that work? God did that work through Nebuchadnezzar. Also in Ezra chapter 1 and in Isaiah chapter 44, it tells us of how God used another king, a pagan king, a foreign king by the name of Cyrus. The king of Persia, we're told, to send the Jews back into their land and then to equip them to rebuild the house of God. Why did that happen? Because God had ordained it. And God's promises and God's will is not constrained or restrained by any earthly authority. God uses them to bring forth His plans throughout this world that we live in. And then even when you look to the New Testament in Luke chapter 2, it may not seem like a big thing, but it is when you understand the prophetic implications of it. But in Luke chapter 2, we're told that God even used a Roman Caesar by the name of Augustus in orchestrating the events that led to the Messiah being born in the city of Bethlehem in fulfillment to prophecy. You see, the point is, guys, our God can be trusted. He can be trusted. With whatever's going on in your life today, you can trust Him. You can lean on Him 100%. You can stand on Him and never have fear that the carpet's going to be pulled out from underneath you. He can be trusted even when everything else in our world is failing. And God's faithfulness to do what He said He will do shall never, should never be brought into question. Just because an ungodly or evil person appears to be standing in the way of God's will. Remember, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 tells us that our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to that power that works within us. You guys, and because of this truth, because of that truth and others like that, we're told by Jesus' words 
from his own mouth. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 and through 33, he says, Do not worry. Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, meaning the unbeliever, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. So what should we do? But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so we read on in this account and says in verse 27, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and they grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Yet when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called out to his son Joseph and said, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh. It was a customary thing for making an oath or a vow. He says, Deal kindly and truly with me, and please do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And the last point of application this morning, guys, that I want us to see has to do with Jacob's request. And also with Joseph's oath with Joseph, Joseph's oath to return his father to, promise, to the promised land in order to be buried with his fathers. And in light of this, guys, what we see, what we need to see is that even though Jacob had, had enjoyed... Now think about this real quick. When Jacob stood before Pharaoh, he says, you know, I'm 130 years old and the days of my life have been... Um, what did he say specifically? I don't want to misquote it. But he said, they've been few because he's comparing himself to Abraham and Isaac, who both lived to be 170 and 180. And he said evil, which really the translation there is, is troublesome. And if you look back over Jacob's life, isn't that really how it was defined? I mean, there was troubles. Granted, he got himself into a lot of those troubles, right? But there was troubles. So in all those years that we look to, at these last 17 years that we see in Egypt, we see that Jacob enjoyed 17 years of bountiful and restful blessing in the land of Goshen. Nevertheless, we see that he knew, because of his conversation here with Jacob, with Joseph, he knew that his home and that his hope wasn't in Egypt. His hope was in God, the giver of the blessing. And his final resting place would not be in Egypt because he knew that his home, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that his home was a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And because Jacob had made these arrangements for his body to be carried back to the promised land and then buried in his father's burial place, which was, by the way, in a cave called Machpelah, it reveals to us that Jacob was eternally minded all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Remember, this cave of Machpelah was originally purchased by Abraham as a burial place for his wife, Sarah. And when Abraham died, he was also buried in that same cave. And we know that when Abraham's son Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and also Jacob and his wife, Leah, when they all died, they were also buried in this very same cave, cave of Machpelah. And the significance of this one cave is revealed when we consider that its name, which means double, um, is really a reference, as many Bible scholars believe, to the, to the construction or the geography of the tomb in, or of, the, of this specific grave in that it had two doors. 
Meaning, listen, you've heard this probably before when we were studying out this, the Abraham's purchase of it and burying of Sarah back in, in Genesis chapter 25, but it's been a while ago. So what, what that meant is what that means is, is that this cave, this tomb, it had a way out that was different, a way out that was different than the way that you came in. A way out that is different than the way that you came in. And so the cave of Machpelah was the cave of two doors. And knowing what we know about Abraham, Isaac, and about Jacob, we can see that this cave was a proper burial place for them and their, and their, and their wives because it's a reminder for the child of God that our physical death is just a door that leads through to another door that leads into eternity. And this is a, such a cool thing for us to consider in light of the words that Jesus spoke in, Matt, in, in Mark chapter 12 concerning really this resurrection from the dead, our living hope and the hope of eternal life that is attached and surrounding it. And in that passage, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus, he was speaking specifically to a sect of religious Jews called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were Sadducee because they believed there was no resurrection from the dead. That's a Sunday school joke. And in verses 24 through 27 of Mark chapter 12, we're told that Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now these are the religious leaders. And Jesus just like, hey, by the way, aren't you mistaken because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, he says, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but like angels in heaven. But they are like the angels in heaven. He says, but concerning the dead, they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. Isaac and the God of Jacob. He, Jesus said, is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living you are therefore greatly mistaken. And see, Jesus' point to these Sadducees was that if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not alive, then God would not have said, I am their God. Rather, He would have said, I had been their God. Right? And our God, guys, is not, the God of the, is, is not a God of the dead. Our God is not a God of the dead. He is a God of every believing person, including those who have died in faith and yet lives on, even today, having been promoted into that place of eternity. Having entered in through the door of death and exited through the door leading into eternity. Justin, if you want to come up and um, uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap this up. This morning we have this, this extended time where we're going to um, have uh, a prayer Time for prayer with the, 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 some of the uh, elders that will be up front. But before we close and before I invite you guys up for that, um, I want to end with this. You see, in light of all this in regards to just how can this practically apply to our lives, guys, this is probably one of the most significant things that I think we can think about today. Because in light of all this, we must see that Jacob's request to be buried in the Promised Land in the cave of Machpelah, that it was born from a desire that he had for his funeral to be a clear witness to his sons and to his sons' sons that he was not an idol-worshiping Egyptian, but a believer in the true and living God. That's what he desired. 
Don't leave me in this place. This is not who I am. This is not my home. And I want my kids and my kids' kids and their kids to know that about me. That I'm a worshiper and a follower of the one true and living God. That I live on once this life is over. And guys, if we're to stop and think about our own funeral, about that day when we too will enter into the door of death and through into the door of eternal life, if we think about our own funeral and how it will be the last public testimony that we will ever give, it should make us want to plan carefully considering it will be our last opportunity to tell those whom we love exactly where our faith and our hope rests. Where does your faith and your hope rest? Father, it rests in you. Everything else is faithless and hopeless. And many of us here, God, have spent a lot of years searching and looking for something that is faithful and hopeful in this world that would take us and give us peace and joy and blessing and rest. And there is nothing, Lord, apart from You. And so, Father, as we see in this study through Genesis chapter 47, Your will being made known to us, I pray, God, that we would trust in You that we would apply these things to our lives, Lord, that we would let the hope of eternal life and our knowledge of You, God, rule and guide everything that we do, everything that we say. Lord, as we come to You with the time that we have left to worship and to make our requests known to You, I pray, God, that we would come with hopeful expectation and coming in faith, Lord, knowing that You hear our prayers, that You've given Your life so that we might have relationship with You, and that we, Father, can come and commune with You to, to, to pray together, to lift up our requests, to lift up our needs, to find strength and encouragement. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who, who, who needs that prayer, either for someone to pray with them or to pray over them, I pray, God, that they wouldn't hesitate, that they would understand, Lord, that, that they're precious in Your sight and that their request is in their need is important to You. So, Father, we love you and we worship you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, if you want to come forward and you guys want to dim the lights, please. And uh, Justin, you know, lead us in some worship.